Welcome to Refrangible. I'm your host, Jennifer Fields. And I'm Jonah Chester. In the last episode, we discussed the idea of home through the lens of loss. That is, how does losing a home impact our perception of home? That episode got us thinking. In what other ways can we define home? One method is to consider a home not as four walls and a roof or a geographic location, but as a collection of items, be they sentimental, decorative, or essential, and how those items define who we are as people. Dr. Tiffany Momin is the co-director of the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive, a virtual project which aims to preserve the decorative arts passed down through Black communities from 1619 on. And Dr. Ruthie Dibble is the curator of the Chipstone Foundation in Milwaukee. Dibble and Momin are co-curators of the exhibition Troubled Like the Restless Sea at the Milwaukee Art Museum. The show explores how luxury home goods in Southern plantation houses obscured the true ugliness running just under the surface. The seed of this exhibition actually came out of um, the introduction of one of my favorite scholarly books, which is Out of the House of Bondage by Tavolia Glimpth. It's a book that looks really closely at um, the interactions between enslaved women and enslavers uh, throughout the 19th century. And then after the Civil War, looking at the trajectory of uh, freed women's um, work after the Civil War. And in the introduction, she's making this point that we need to look really carefully at sources that were that are by white folks that talk about interactions with enslaved people. And she quotes Frederick Douglass. She says that um, we need to really interrogate what Frederick Douglass called the seeming of the plantation household. And that really struck me because her main focus is not objects or works of art. I have had this feeling that decorative arts have a lot of seeming as well. They seem to be one thing, but in fact, there's something else. But I hadn't had the language for that and the kind of critical theory to think about that up to that moment. So I, like any good scholar, um, I looked at her Tavolia Glimpse's footnote and I saw that it was from Frederick Douglass's 1855 autobiography my bondage and my freedom. And I pulled up the passage and was really blown away by this critique he was launching of luxury furnishings and how they are interwoven into the immorality of slavery. The idea of home was so di- in one place on one ma- on one chunk of land, the ideal of what was a home and what was contained in that home was very different. I never wanted to consider the living quarters of a master. Like I never wanted to think about the items they may have had that made their lives somewhat comfortable. In addition to making their lives comfortable, I think a really good metaphor to think about is laundering. Like it was also a way to launder their reputation. And Frederick Douglass, he starts this section of his autobiography by saying, 
if you were a guest, if you were a white guest of the Lloyds at Y House, you would see all these beautiful things and you would see well-dressed enslaved butlers and you wouldn't think anything's wrong because for centuries, uh, European Americans have been conditioned to associate wealth and luxury with good moral standing. At what point did you decide to bring Dr. Moman in? Well, I had been talking to Chipstone's executive director, John Prown, about this project. And simultaneously, on a parallel track, we had been looking closely and with great excitement at Dr. Moman's scholarship because she and her colleague, Torin Gatson, have created this incredible database. The database is the Black Crafts People Digital Archive, and you can find it at blackcraftspeople.org. And it is a digital humanities project that centers the lives and experiences of Black craftspeople uh, from their arrival in this country through 1900. And we do that um, in a variety of ways, um, including the digital archive aspect, which includes documentary uh, primary sources, uh, telling the stories of these craftspeople. And we also do that by paying close attention to place. Uh, We feel that understanding place and the power of place is essential to understanding uh, the early Black craft experience in this country. And so when uh, Ruthie and John invited me to join this project, it was right up my alley, essentially, uh, because one of the things that had always bothered me about the decorative arts, and I should say, um, I was introduced to the decorative arts in 2016 as a graduate student. My initial research up until that point had been historically Black colleges and universities um, and post-emancipation communities. So I was moving into a field Uh, That was one, not my time period, and two, that focused very heavily on objects and not architecture like I was used to. And so I went to a summer program and fully immersed myself in the decorative arts. And all I could keep thinking while I was there, which directly ties into uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and, and the inspiration for this exhibition was that nobody is talking about how these people are making their money. Nobody is talking about the money behind these objects, behind these homes filled with these objects. Nobody's talking about where the money comes from that's supporting all of this luxury. And where it was coming from was slavery and the exploitation of enslaved people. So when I was told about this project and I saw that it was going to talk about Uh, but doesn't get talked about when it was going to tell the truth behind some of these decorative arts um, objects. I was all for it. I was like, count me in. It, you know, and the thing about it, Tiffany, is that when I think about decorative arts, when I look around my home and think about how they speak to who I am as a person, what I like to have around me, I don't know that I could surround myself and be comfortable with things that I know came from suffering. So this is idea of the beauty and suffering and being able to not only lavish in this luxury that came from blood, sweat, pain, and death and terror, but also present it in a way that, I don't know, speaks to your accomplishments, that somehow makes you, This speaks to your position in society. So your position in society and your money and the options you have in your house is based on taking advantage of and enslaving 
those who have nothing. Oh, in including their own names anymore. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, this is something that I, I struggled with this. I sometimes still struggle with this, right? Because I do love antiques. I've loved antiques since I was a child. Uh, but, you know, you grow up, you become educated, and then you learn more and you realize, oh, this is what's happening. Um, and so one of the ways that I have approached that very thought uh, through my work with the BCDA is to reframe the story. So you have the story of these Black craftspeople who are making these objects that people love and, and collect, and that still to this very day sell for thousands of dollars at auction. And the way that I have reframed this is to think about it in terms of the artistry, because we know as much as people in those eras like to say that, oh, well, you know, um, enslaved people can't do this, they aren't this, they aren't that bright, et cetera, et cetera. There's artistry in that work. There's artistry in that work. There's agency in that work. And there is identity in that work. Mm -hmm. And every time in doing this research that I uncover um, a piece of furniture, for example, that a Black craftsperson signed, because they, while they are very rare, they do still exist. I feel very proud about that, mm -hmm. that this person made this object, signed their name, staked their claim to it, said, this is me, this is my work, I'm going to sign this despite uh, the obstacles that are in front of me, despite the oppression in which I live. That makes me feel very proud. I, as a Black woman, also fall into that bad habit of looking at the past through my contemporary lens and having to remind myself that all that I know would not have been known by an enslaved person at that time period. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm so struck by about Tiffany's statement is that in a way it's it's uh, very like old school to celebrate the individual and the agency of the maker and the craftsperson. And museums are very comfortable doing that in galleries of European painting, right? Yep. Like we want to read all about what Michelangelo was doing in 1513, et cetera. Um, but that way of framing uh, historical Black craftspeople, and particularly enslaved Black craftspeople, has really not caught up with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's really exciting to see Tiffany not only doing that work, but also showing that there's so much more to find out about the past and the lives of uh, Black craftspeople. Talk to me about some of those objects. Tiffany, was there one in particular that stood out for you? Absolutely. So in, in looking at the list of objects that we had, of course, we had several. And I, I should mention that we're doing this throughout the height of the pandemic. So it's, it's us meeting virtually. But in looking at the objects that we had and thinking about the stories that we could tell, because, again, sort of the heart of this project was telling the truth, right? Sort of presenting the object to you as you would normally see it in a museum, but then sort of flipping that and going, here's what you don't see when you when you would, you know, traditionally go to a museum. And one of those objects was a charger. It's a charger that depicts Cape Coast Castle on the Gold Coast of Africa. And when you look at this charger, it's beautiful. It, it's blue and white. It's very detailed um, in the center of the charger there. Um, you have a image of the Cape Coast Castle. 
very calm waters. Um, you have an image of a uh, big boat with its sails, and then there's a, a smaller boat uh, there in the foreground. So it's sort of painting this very idyllic scene of the coast of Africa and this and Cape Coast Castle, right? So you might see it, you might look at it, and you might go, "Oh, this this looks great." You know, this this maybe this looks like some place you'd like to vacation someday. But what's missing from this story, which is what makes this object so intriguing, was that Cape Coast Castle was a British trading post um, in modern day Ghana. And that trading post, people exchanged a variety of goods, everything from different foods and spices, other objects, blankets, gold, and enslaved people. And so that's, that's the truth of the matter. You could come to this castle and get all of those things, including people. And that's not the scene you get on that charger. How something that's such a part of our everyday life can be so disturbing. Like, you know that was used. Someone probably consumed mm -hmm. a meal off that and was fine with that. Absolutely. In telling this story on the object label, we hit people with that fact immediately, that this is what you could buy here. Uh, you could buy people at this castle. We point out additionally that this scene wouldn't have been the idyllic scene you see on this charger. This was a place of suffering. This was castle was essentially a prison where um, enslaved Africans were shackled and held in, in, in basically dungeons uh, before their forced migrations to the Americas. It's a bad memory. And one of the things uh, in, in researching this particular piece, we found a book of poetry written by um, in a poem called Eclipse, written by someone um, I, who I should apologize because I'm, I'm about to um, mispronounce this name, I'm certain but Quado Apoku Egemang, and it's called Eclipse, and it's all about the truth behind uh, Cape Coast Castle and other castles such as that one. This is a dark landscape. It's white. It's in the sun. So if people were outside waiting to board these ships, they were baking in the sun. And then there's this like, little porthole that goes out to where the boats would have been. So you're inside this castle-like structure, and then you cross this portal, and you, you're set to sea and set off to an uncertain future. Like they don't, people don't, they don't know what's going on. They have no idea what's in store for them. Some foreshadowing with how they're being treated in the castle, but there's no way to know what's going to happen to you once you board that ship. Just think of the fear, right? these enslaved Africans don't speak the language of the people who are forcing them onto these ships. So there are probably people crying, screaming, trying to find help. And yet when you look at this charger, it's this idyllic scene of the coast. And it just speaks to how everyday objects can have this deep history. A friend of mine is getting married in October and one of the questions another friend of mine asked her was, oh, what's your china pattern? I had been to the museum and seen the exhibit. And so I had that little charger sort of like that little because it's not small. And the charger sort of bouncing around in my head. And I'm thinking how integral that question is to people setting up home. Mm -hmm. Right. What luxury item or what thing can I buy you to help celebrate your, your nuptials? I'll tell you something. So as a historian, I'm a historian of the later period. And so one of the things that I will never look at 
the same after working on this exhibition is a pineapple. Mm. Um, because I had, I mean, you see the pineapple motif constantly in the decorative arts and I had just always associated, it's, it's one of these things that's supposed to be welcoming, right? To signal welcoming and in working on this exhibition, because there is a pineapple shaped, um, teapot in the exhibition, it presented an opportunity to dig deeper into what pineapples meant and how the pineapple is, of course, a symbol of wealth, but also a symbol of empire, um, connecting it back to the plantations in the Caribbean where it was grown and how the uh, pineapples get transported to uh, Great Britain and how they become this sort of luxury fruit, essentially. But that's tied to the exploitation of enslaved individuals. And I used to have a pineapple cookie jar in my kitchen that is no longer there because I I couldn't stand the sight of it anymore. Tiffany, has this changed? And Ruthie, I'll ask you the same question. Has this changed how you think about the word home and what that means? I think being in the decorative arts world, when so many of the, uh, when you know, basically almost all of the objects we were looking at used to be in somebody's home uh, will sort of change your concept of understanding um, what home is. I think about that constantly um, in relation to, you know, going to these historic houses where these objects are and sort of listening to these tours that are dancing around the truth, that are finding these, these ways to not tell the entire story, right? And when I begin to think about objects in, in that way, I, when I joined the field, it seemed to me to be common sense to look at an object and go, okay, it's, it's here, it's in the parlor of this home, but I'm immediately thinking about who's caring for the object. And that's not something that, that you hear in a lot of decorative arts circles. Because for me, being a Black woman, knowing the history of these houses that I'm going to, I'm immediately thinking about the person that took care of the object, that cleaned the object, the person that essentially cared for it in such a good way that it exists for us today to look at, right? Um, And that's just not a story you hear. So when you think about home in in that light, think about home and and thinking about the ways uh, everybody in the home, everybody in the home um, who encountered an object, a completely new story. Uh, begins to emerge there. In some ways, this exhibition is the consequence of a shift in how I think about home because my dissertation looked closely at domestic objects and domestic crafts during and right after the Civil War. And what, you know, from reading both primary and secondary sources, including Tavolia Glimpse outside the House of Bondage, it became clear to me that the history of domesticity is absolutely related to the history of violence, you know, and we see that even today. And so I wanted to think more about how not just the space of the home is implicated, in histories of violence and oppression, but also objects in homes. We, we kind of, as a society, want to try to separate the home from 
violence from political social conflict, but it's there's a long history of the intertwined nature of that. I, now, I do think one of the things this exhibition really brought home for me is that the North and the history of decorative arts in the North in homes is not immune from or outside of this history of violence. Um, and some of the most important works and stories in the exhibition are about histories of slavery and the mistreatment of people of African descent uh, in the New England. And that, I think, is very important to me and Tiffany to show that this isn't a story that uh, North, Northern histories of decorative arts can excuse themselves from. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And thanks to our guests for this episode, Dr. Ruthie Dibble of the Chipstone Foundation and Dr. Tiffany Momin. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. Until next time, I'm Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Jonathan Fields, and we'll see you soon.